Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Do you love the music that you hear on this podcast? Do you find yourself listening every week all the way to the end of the episode just so you can hear some more of Johnny Rose's tunes? Well, if so, I'd like to ask a favor of you. If you haven't done so already, go to truthandjusticethemusic.com and check out the soundtrack, Truth and Justice, The Music. As I've told you before, Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music has created all of the music for Truth and Justice all the way back from the Serial Dynasty days. Johnny has never charged a dime for any of his work. In order to pay him back for all of his efforts, I've asked him to create the Truth and Justice soundtrack. This is a way for a nominal amount we can all work to pay Johnny back for all of the hard work that he's done. As I've said before, Johnny didn't ask me to do this. He's never asked for any money. But I would love to see us really throw a lot of support at Johnny by purchasing some of the music that he's created for the show. You can preview all the songs on the truthandjusticethemusic.com website, or you can buy the entire album or one song at a time directly from iTunes. Let's all show Johnny Rose how much we appreciate the work he's put into helping make this a better show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I'm finally sitting at the recording desk after an extremely long week of reading through thousands of pages of court documents. This week's episode will be a little bit shorter than last week. It's actually late in the afternoon on Friday right now while I'm recording this. I typically record on Wednesdays and start editing on Thursday. The reason for the delay is I want to make sure that I have a clear picture of what went on in Edward Eight's case before I start reporting on it. And after finally reading through the entire transcript of his trial from 1998, I have to say that I'm absolutely astonished that he got convicted. I'm not quite sure how any jury could have seen that case and believed that it proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Edward Eights murdered Elnora Griffin. But in any case, they did. And now, 18 years later, Edward Eights is still sitting in a prison cell where if we don't do something about it, he'll spend the rest of his life. The entirety of this case is actually quite complex. There are several different players involved, a couple of alternative suspects, there's a brutal crime scene, and it can be a little bit difficult to track all of the elements of this case. So in order for all of you to have a clear picture of what happened, and to be able to keep everything straight, I'm going to break down this case through several episodes. I'm guessing it'll probably take somewhere between four and eight episodes to get it all in, depending on what new information I find along the way. So while all of this is going on, know that I am actively working on investigating this case. The Texas Tech School of Law is working on the legal issues. I'm working on setting up a meeting with Michael Weir of the Innocence Project. So in a nutshell, we have two different directions where this is going to go. For starters, we have the legal side of this trying to find a legal standard that will allow us to get this case back into court. 
Unfortunately, the way the criminal justice system works in our country, once you've been convicted of a crime, innocence and guilt are no longer an issue. It doesn't even matter. Once you've been convicted, it's all about whether or not you received a fair trial. That's what TTU Law and the Innocence Project be working on. And the other method of getting an innocent person out of prison is to actually solve the case and figure out who actually committed the murder. That's where I come in, along with help from all of you. The active investigation will be going on in the background while I'm reporting to you all of the elements of the trial. At the same time, I'll be continuing to work on Kenny Snow's case and trying to figure out a way to get that case back into the courts as well. But for today's episode, I want to very quickly lay out for you the prosecution's case against Edward Eights. Like I said, there's a lot of complexity to this case, and the prosecution took a lot of swings at Edward Eights during the trial. But the reality of it is, they only actually landed a couple of punches. And as it turns out, that was enough for a conviction. So in today's episode, we'll have a little bit different of a format. I'm going to go ahead and read the ad from today's sponsor right now. And then I'll follow that up with the prosecution's case, only highlighting the punches that were landed, the elements that I believe got Edward Eights convicted. And I'll tell you up front, with all of these points, there is contradictory evidence, but we're not going to discuss that today. Today's episode will be one-sided, and I'm only going to give you information that implicates Edward Eights in this crime. I'm not going to give you the defense's arguments to this. That'll come next week. But before I do that, I want to tell you about today's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Stamps.com. You do whatever it takes to make sure your business runs efficiently, but constant trips to the post office can get in the way. With Stamps.com, you'll be able to spend less time at the post office and more time growing your business. Stamps.com makes mailing and shipping easy. Use your own computer and printer to buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or any package. Stamps.com does all the thinking for you. With the digital scale, it will calculate the exact postage you need, and it even helps you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. Join over 600,000 small businesses that use Stamps.com and never go to the post office again. I'm personally proud to be a part of that group of 600,000 small businesses that use Stamps.com. It's quick, it's easy, it saves me time and money. And right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use my promo code TRUTH for this special offer. Stamps will give you a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in TRUTH. That's stamps.com. Enter TRUTH. Elnora Griffin was a tiny woman. She was four foot, four and a half inches tall, and her weighted autopsy was 104 pounds. At the time of her murder, she was renting a trailer from her cousin, Johnny Pryor. The trailer was located on Miss Pryor's property, whose home was located between the trailer and the home of Maggie Dews. Maggie Dews was Edward Eight's grandmother, and he was living with her at the time. So the layout of this crime scene, if you can imagine in your head, was three buildings in close proximity to each other. The brick house in the center belongs to Johnny Pryor. 
directly to the west and set back just a little bit further from the road than Johnny's house was the single wide trailer where Elnora Griffin lived and was ultimately murdered. To the east of Ms. Pryor's house, just up a hill, was the home of Maggie Dews, where Edward Ates and his mother, Margie Jackson, all lived. Edward's brother, Kelvin, also lived in that house with the family. So far, no one's been able to verify Elnora's exact age at the time of her death to me, but from what everyone's told me, she was in her late 40s to early 50s at the time of her death. She worked the day shift at a medical center, along with Johnny Pryor and another friend named Kubia Jackson, who I'll tell you about here in just a little bit. The three of them were all very close friends, and Johnny and Elnora were also very good friends with Edward Eight's grandmother. It was a common occurrence that every day when Elnora got off of work, she would always stop by Maggie Dew's house. Some days she would eat dinner with them, other days she would sit and visit and then go down and cook dinner for herself. On the night of July 22, 1993, Elnora Griffin was brutally murdered. The last known contact that anyone had with Elnora Griffin was that night somewhere between 9.45 and 10.30 p.m. This was the strongest element of the state's case. The woman that I mentioned earlier, Kubia Jackson, told police that on the 22nd of July, she had called Elnora. She said that she believes this call was somewhere between 9.45 and 10.30 p.m. The conversation was short. According to Kubia, Elnora answered, and she told her that she was sitting here talking to Edward. Kubia asked Edward who, and Elnora said, Edward Lewis, Mrs. Dew's grandson. Lewis was Edward Eight's middle name. According to Kubia, after that, she told her that she would call her back later, but that call never came. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. This statement made by Kubia Jackson to the police on the night the body was found is the reason that Edward Eights became an immediate suspect. And Kubia was also a part of the reason that Elnora's body was found. When she got home on the evening of the 23rd, so the day after the murder, she says that she tried to call Elnora and there was no answer. So she called Johnny Pryor. She told her that she hadn't been able to get a hold of Elnora. And then at some point, Kubia called Elnora's work and they told her that she hadn't come into work that morning. She then called Johnny back and told her that she hadn't gone to work and that she should go over and check on her. Johnny told me when I visited with her last week that she was immediately concerned, because when she looked over to the trailer house, she noticed that Elnora's car was parked in an unusual place. She had been thinking throughout the day that Elnora wasn't home, because she didn't see her car. But her car was there, 
but instead of pulling up to the end of the trailer where she normally parked, it was pulled forward about 10 more feet, kind of behind the trailer. At that point, she got really nervous, and she called up to Miss Dews, Edward's grandmother, and asked her if she'd come down and go check with her. Before they made the about 200-foot walk over to the trailer, Johnny Pryor called 911 and said that they should send somebody over because she's worried that Elnora might be dead. She and Miss Dews walked over to the trailer, went up to the front door and knocked with no answer. The door was locked, but Johnny had a key. She says that she opened the door and saw Elnora's naked body laying on the floor with blood everywhere. She says that she never went into the trailer. She just shut the door. At about that same time, a local volunteer firefighter came peeling into the driveway. He was medically trained, and as he went into the building to check things out, Johnny went back to her house to call Kubia back. She didn't get through to her. She left her a couple of voicemails, the second one saying, you need to come down here. In the midst of all of this, Ed and his brother Kelvin saw the emergency lights and the crowd gathering, and they walked down the hill to go see what was happening. They walked down to the front porch, started to open the door, when a Smith County deputy sheriff told them they need to get out of there, they're not allowed to be in. They left the porch, and everybody kind of gathered at Johnny Pryor's house. Shortly thereafter, Kubia Jackson showed up there on the scene. A couple of deputies were assigned to start questioning everybody and writing down witness statements. This is when Kubia told the deputy that she had spoke with Elnora last night and that she said she was sitting there talking to Edward. At that point, Detective Dale Hugel and Deputy Steve Cheney started questioning Edward Ates and his mother, Margie Jackson. You heard on the show when we interviewed Ed that he says they actually told him they wanted to talk to him about a robbery. He was confused, but he went ahead and got in their car voluntarily, along with his mother. So in the car was Deputy Steve Cheney, Detective Dale Hugel, Ed and his mom, Margie. They went to the Smith County Sheriff's Department and sat down in the office of Detective Jason Waller. Now, I do have the audio tapes from this interview, but the sound quality is so bad it's not even worth playing. You can barely hear it even with noise-canceling headphones on. The microphone in the room was placed right in front of the air conditioner. So between the air conditioner motor humming and the wind blowing on the microphone, you can't hear hardly anything. I will, however, post the transcripts on the website of this interview. So, so far for the prosecution's case... They have evidence that Edward Eights was in Elnora Griffin's home somewhere between 9.45 and 10.30 on the night of the murder, based on the testimony of Kubia Jackson. But this was the most damning piece of evidence. In that interview, Ed Eights lied to the detectives. He doesn't deny it now. He said he lied. In a conversation I had with him just yesterday, he was reminiscing about this moment. He asked me if I ever wished I had a time machine. He told one stupid lie, the way he put it, and it's cost him his life. The detectives asked him if he had been in Elnora Griffin's trailer. He said no, and he still maintains to this day that's true, that he was not there that night. He didn't talk to her. He saw her earlier in the evening when she came to his grandmother's house after she got off of work but he had not been in her house. That wasn't the lie. The detectives asked him where he was. He told the detectives that he'd been at his girlfriend's house, a woman by the name of Monica Bush. Now, Ed didn't have a car, and he tells me now that he had actually taken his grandmother's car to go over to Monica's house. But he told the detectives that Monica had come over and picked him up and taken him back to her house somewhere around 9 or 9.30, and then he stayed there most of the evening. This was a lie, 
and I'm sure you can imagine how hard that would be for a jury to get past. He lied about his alibi. During the course of the interrogation, one of the deputies, Steve Cheney, stepped out and called Monica Bush on the phone. He asked her to verify Ed's story, and she did, kind of. She said that Edward had come over that night. She said he'd been at her house between 10 and 11 o'clock at night. This, in and of itself, would have cleared Ed, because that puts him at Monica Bush's apartment at the time when Kubia Jackson says Elnora told her she was sitting there talking to Edward. But her timeline was not consistent with what Ed had said. He had said it was closer to 9 o'clock when she picked him up. And she not only said that it was from 10 to 11, but she said that she did not pick him up. That he showed up at her house. They had caught Ed Eights in a bold-faced lie. And it gets worse than that. When he had showed up at her house, he told Monica that he had rode there with a friend named Marcus. And he told her that he drove, quote, a white boy truck. She said that he was there for a little while and then he left. But here's another problem. Marcus doesn't exist. There was no Marcus. Ed tells me today what had actually happened is that he took his grandmother's car to go visit Monica. He wanted to stop by and see her for a little bit, and he wanted to go out to a club with some friends. He says that he had told her that he got a ride with someone because he didn't want her to go to the club with him. And he says that he thought if she knew he was there with someone else, she wouldn't ask to go. But in any case, it was a lie. So at this point, the police have a case that Kubia Jackson says Elnora told her between 9.45 and 10.30, the night she was murdered, that she was sitting in her trailer talking to Edward. Then you have the fact that Ed lied about where he actually was that night. Now to be clear, there is no dispute that he went to Monica's house. However, the timing of that gets a little hairy by the time we get to the second trial in 98. And this is what helped land that punch for the prosecution. In Monica's statement to the police, the day after the murder occurred, she said that Ed was there from 10 to 11. But five years later at the second trial, she testified that he'd shown up around 11.20 and stayed until about 11.45. So the prosecution was able to put together a solid timeline. And their timeline was simple. He was sitting there talking to Elnora somewhere between 9.45 and 10.30 p.m. Shortly after Elnora got off the phone, he and Elnora got into a struggle. Somehow she ended up noon. And that's another thing. It turns out, according to the medical examiner, there actually was no sexual assault. But in any case, she was nude. He slit her throat, and they say then that he got into her car and drove out to meet his girlfriend. Now, his girlfriend's apartment is about 20 minutes away from Elnora's trailer. So that would mean he would have had to have left her house around 11 o'clock. Which, as they stated at trial, is possible if he began the assault shortly after Elnora got off the phone with Kubia. They told the jury that he went to Monica's apartment simply to create an alibi for himself. And they piled on by presenting evidence that Edward had taken Elnora's car to run this errand. There were three ways that they did this. First of all, Detective Jason Waller testified that when he checked Elnora's car, that the seat was pushed all the way back. As I mentioned before, Elnora is only four foot four, whereas Edward Eights is six foot six. He also claimed that there was a large footprint in the dirt right outside of the car, like where you would step when you get out. Now, without getting into too much detail, I will point out there were no photos presented at trial of the seat pushed back, and there are no photos of the footprint. This was just from Waller's testimony. Also, the radio station in the car was tuned into a station that was described as being a rap music station. It was stated that Elnora Griffin only listened to gospel music, and she would never have a radio tuned to a rap music station. Furthermore, 
two witnesses at Monica Bush's apartment complex made statements to police that they had seen a small white hatchback, that's what Elnora drove, parked at the apartment complex the night of the murder. They said that it was parked out behind a dumpster near the woods. And the one gentleman claimed it caught his attention because he had never seen that car there before. And it was parked in a weird place where most of the residents don't usually park. Now, there are plenty of interesting circumstances surrounding that testimony. But for now, all you need to know is that the jury heard that there were two witnesses that put Elnora Griffin's car at Monica Bush's apartment complex on the night of the murder. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. So if you're keeping track, we're up to three strikes now. Kubia Jackson's testimony that he was sitting at Elnora Griffin's house the night of the murder. He lied to the police about where he was at that night. And there are two witnesses that put Elnora Griffin's car at Monica Bush's apartment on the night of the murder. But at this point, there's still no physical evidence. But that problem didn't last very long. On the night Elnora's body was discovered, while Ed and his mother were sitting in Detective Waller's office, the detectives checked Edward's shoes. And they saw a substance up in between the grooves. Detective Dale Hugel says that he took the shoe and smelled it and it had a foul odor. So right then and there, he scraped the substance into an evidence bag. This evidence was eventually sent to the FBI laboratories for testing, and the result of that test was that the substance on the shoe was human fecal material. Now, without going into too much detail yet, we'll get there in another episode, it's important to note for the case that Elnora Griffin had defecated throughout the house during the struggle. There was fecal material in several places on the floor. This was strike four for Edward Eights. Strike five was the testimony of Kenny Snow. Now, aside from what we already know about that testimony, again, I'm talking about just what the prosecution's case was. Kenny Snow, in the trial, testified that Ed Aits had asked him to help him. He wanted him to go on the stand and lie for him. Snow testified that Ed had written out a script for him to memorize, and that he told him to flush the script down the toilet when he was done memorizing it. But instead of flushing it down the toilet, Kenny mailed it to the DA's office. And if you didn't catch that, there's a subtle discrepancy between that and what FBI agent Dennis Murphy told us on the show. If you'll remember, he said that the purpose of him going down there was simply to get that script from Kenny Snow. But at trial, it's a different story. Snow had mailed the letter directly to David Dobbs. Evidence was also presented that Ed Eights had signed a release form for $8 to be transferred from his commissary into the name of Brandon Boddy. That's Kenny Snow's attorney. The plan was to transfer the money to Body, and then Body would put it into Kenny Snow's account. 
Snow also told the people of the jury that Ed had made a promise to him that after he was released, that he would give him $1,000 for helping him with his case. There was also one more point that the prosecution made that may have been a hit or a miss. On the front door of Elnora Griffin's trailer, the door that Johnny Pryor unlocked to walk in and find her body, the curtain and curtain rod had been ripped off during the struggle, or it's assumed they were ripped off during the struggle. And in their place, a white towel had been hung up over the window so that someone on the front porch couldn't look in and see her body laying there. At trial, Detective Waller testified that there was a large hand imprint on the towel, as though someone had been holding it up while they tacked it above the door. Now, the best I could understand from the testimony is that by handprint, he means that there was an impression in the terry cloth where the hand had been. The prosecution stated at trial that the jury could look and see the pictures of the towel. And there was indeed pictures, but it was just from across the room showing the towel hung up on the window. There were no close-ups of the towel. You never see any evidence that there actually was a handprint. But that was the testimony. Furthermore, Waller testified that he held his hand up to the handprint and that the print was much larger than his, thus indicating that a large person such as Edward Eights must have left the handprint. But again, there's no photo of him holding his hand up to it. They didn't trace out the handprint. There was no photographic evidence to support that claim. The towel was sent to the FBI lab for testing, and they were told that there's nothing that they can do with it. The print had, quote, dissipated, and there was nothing there for them to work with. This is one of the elements that the prosecution really drove home in closing arguments, that there was this huge handprint on the towel. But at the same time, the defense refuted it by saying that there's no proof that this ever even happened. But that's it. That was the nuts and bolts of the state's case. A lot of the witnesses they brought up were basically playing defense, explaining why there was no other physical evidence found, alternative suspects giving alibis, things of that nature. So as a review, and remember like I told you at the beginning of this episode, what I'm giving you today is the very worst, the strongest parts of the state's case against Edward Eights, without getting into any of the defense. We have testimony from Kubia Jackson, who says that she had called Elnora Griffin at home between 9.45 and 10.30 p.m. the night she was murdered, and she told her she was sitting there talking to Edward. You have the fact that Edward Eights lied about his alibi and was caught red-handed in that lie. You also have the fact that Ed never gave an excuse as to why he would have been in Elnora's trailer that night. The way the prosecution sees it, there's irrefutable evidence that he was there based on that phone call, and Ed's only response to that was then, and still is now, that he wasn't there. There was testimony that the seat in Elnora's car was pushed all the way back, there was a large footprint outside of it, and the radio was tuned to a rap music station. You have two witnesses that say that they saw Elnora Griffin's car outside of Monica Bush's apartment on the night of the murder. You have a second method for placing Edward Eights in the trailer of Elnor Griffin on the night of the murder, in that they had found fecal material that came from a human on the bottom of Edward Eights' shoes the night after the murder, about 24 hours later. You have the testimony of Kenny Snow, who testified that Edward Eights had paid him to lie for him. And you have a towel that was tacked over the window of Elnor's trailer that contained a large handprint on it. As the prosecution stated in closing, when you add all of that up, it clearly points to the fact that Ed Eights murdered Elnora Griffin. And that was enough for a conviction. But there is a lot more to this story.
like I said at the beginning of the show, for the next several weeks, I'm going to be breaking down the entirety of this case, point by point throughout the trial, changing testimonies, impeached witnesses, possible witness tampering. But before we do that, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning, and that's victimology and an analysis of the actual crime scene. Next week on Truth and Justice. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all of the music for the show. Thank you to Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to today's sponsor, Stamps.com. I will be starting to upload documents to the website. Sorry I haven't got to them at this point. I wanted to read through them all first, and I just haven't had time to update the website. I won't be uploading the entire transcript at once. As we go along, I'll be uploading case documents, transcripts, and crime scene photos that are relevant to each episode. The photos may take a little bit longer because I have to do some editing on them. Out of respect for the victim and the victim's family, I don't want any photos of the actual body to be published. But I think that I can edit the body out of the photos and give you a better idea of the actual crime scene. So keep checking back to truthandjusticepod.com on the case document page for updates. Keep sending in your emails to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send those new cases to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter at truthjusticepod. Stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.